מרגישים קיץ באוויר. כבר עשרים שנה. מרגישים קיץ באוויר. כל רמה. כל רמה מאה ושתיים שלוש. מרגישים קיץ באוויר. שידור ישיר ממחנה רמה Rabbi Jeremy Kalov, Kalmanovsky, Anshay Chesed, New York City, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Salman Shek, the Day School of Long Island. I just wanted to say, I hope the Montreal Canadiens are winning. Okay, fine. Parshat Matot Maseh, double Parsha, ending off this book, Bamidbar. We, I want to say it's an amazing Parsha, that these are two amazing Parshas, but they're very difficult Parshas. They're complicated Parshas, and they're, they're starting with Uh, something that is obviously, I think, very difficult for us. Well, we'll start with first the, the idea of the vows, right? That's where it starts. And then, uh, of course, uh, we're going into the avenging of the uh, Midianites. So just a word or two about promises, vows. What's the difference between a, a vow and a... Oath. Oath, an oath. According, according, to, according to the great... Bible scholar Jacob Milgram, um, the, uh, the, a vow is a promise to do something and an oath is either a swear that you didn't do something, I swear on oath that I did not steal your donkey, or an oath is like a, a, um, uh, an, an abstention, a, a kind of an ascetic vow. I promise that I will refrain from some sort of pleasure. It's a religious kind of experience. So the, the, uh, the portion here is that when a female... If she is unmarried and young, I, I think not a child child, but a, um, uh, a 12 year old, she becomes, uh, this, is, this is one of the sources actually for the, the idea of the majority being 12 for females and 13 for males, um, that a female makes a, a, a self, She's, she makes a vow to refrain from some sort of pleasure upon herself, some sort of ascetic religious devotion, made while she's unmarried and in her father's house. The father has a veto power for the first 24 hours after hearing about the vow. And then, and her husband, when she gets married, she goes to her husband's house. The husband has the 24-hour veto window. It's just a, it's, I mean, it's one of the things that I find hard to understand. It's, it's not for, for somebody who has an egalitarian approach to religion. It's pretty hard to wrestle with why it is that the private devotion of an individual human being, a female human being, is subject to somebody else's veto power. But clearly the, this, the idea behind this passage is that husbands and wives, or I guess for, I, I, it's easier for me to understand husbands and wives because, because they have, live in, in, you know, they have a sexual life together, whatever, that, um, that he has some stake in it. Why does the father have some stake in her behavior? I don't know, but it's, it's clearly subsidiary. Her behavior is subsidiary to his control. It's, it's a, an artifact of this ancient world. What about, what about the whole notion underpinning this, which is the power of words, the power of promises, the power of, of statements. I mean, the, the biblical worldview is a worldview in which the word carries weight to it. I mean, we still have a vestige of that when we recite uh, Yom Kippur, Kol Nidre, you know, which is really a formula annulling vows. Uh, so, so 
what we're seeing here is a, a specific instance or set of instances regarding the place of specific vows and oaths uh, uttered by individuals that can be annulled by people that are quote unquote in charge of them. That, that I think rubs up against our uh, own modern sensibilities, but you have the biblical understanding of the power of the word, the power of the promise, Barry. That, that part is certainly true. I mean, the, the, Torah, the Torah began all this by saying, when you promise something, you have to fulfill. That's a mitzvah theoraita to fulfill your vows. So, you know, we've all noticed a coarsening of discourse over the years. And I think that the, the power of words is suggested in the very beginning of Breshit, where the world is summoned into being by divine speech. And I think that idea permeates the Bible, that words can create worlds and they can destroy worlds as well. And therefore, it behooves us to take care in how we speak. And this is one of the parts of the Torah that addresses that issue because you know, words, you don't always get a do-over in life. And even though we say sticks and stones may break my bones, words will never hurt me. In reality, we know that it's the reverse that's true. You could get beaten up and recover from your wounds, but you don't easily forget something hurtful that someone said, even from a long time ago. And I think that, you know, especially as we're in the three weeks now, um, the commemoration of the national disasters that have befallen our people, which is preparation for the high holy days, which will come seven, eight weeks later. And, you know, one of the great themes of the high holy days is how important words are. Most of the sins that we're going to acknowledge and ask for forgiveness are, are going to be sins of speech. All right. So then we move into a, into the next part of this Parsha, which, I mean, starts with words, words of words from God directing uh, B'nai Yisrael, Nikom Nikmat B'nai Yisrael Asher Elamecha. It seems that with words, we are being instructed here to complete some unfinished business with the Midianites. We we recall it, this is already uh, back to Parshat, uh, the end of Balak and Pinchas, uh, that we've had this encounter with the Midianites. The Midianites seduced the Israelites. We'll see in this Parsha that they, they seduced, attempted to seduce the Israelites at the instigation of none other than Bilam, Bilam the itinerant prophet who we made out to be, yes, a, a bit of a canard or buffoon. Uh, but that, that skirmish really leaves, I think, um, a very bad uh, uh, stain on, on the people. And uh, also a sense that there's really some scores to settle here. Moses is being instructed uh, to settle scores, basically. Um, and the people then are mustered. They, they uh, go out and, and basically kill a lot of Midianites. They leave some women, some men alive. They take a lot of booty. This, um, we have a lot of different uh, uh, perspectives on, on this uh, particular uh, instance in the Torah. I'm, I'm, it's, it's uncomfortable to talk about because it deals with things that we're, we're so uh, unused to. We live in um, such, so removed from battle, from war, from the kinds of possibilities in war. I, 
can you give us some handle on this, uh, just as a reader of this, and maybe what direction to take it into? Jeremy, you want to give this a shot? Oh, well, um, you know, I think... A good beginning. Uh, boy. Boy. <laughs> yeah, that's my first... That's what Rashi said, actually. But, uh, you know, obviously, you, um, you... Our job... Our job as rabbis, as teachers of Torah, is to make this religion meaningful. To make it... Which doesn't mean that you have to say everything in it is great. Um, but it means you have to make it a struggle for depth and ethics and spirituality and love and and to refine a religious personality and to um, you know to to give us the best possibilities for excellent conduct and excellent character. And so I am always inclined to find what is meaningful in the sources that I study. And uh, and. Sometimes you just run up the just against the vast, vast, vast distance between us and a given passage, um, and you don't. I think it is generally speaking a superficial thing to do to stand here in 2021 and look back at an ancient text and just wag your finger and say this is terrible. So you're not going to cancel. You're not going to cancel this text. You're just going. You're going to do what a Jew has to do with this with this text, which is. You're going to really struggle with it, wrestle with it, and and really understand that that we 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 are we are in tension with this. We don't we we yeah. We were talking before the before we started recording about. Um, I, I don't think that Judaism is a pacifist religion. I, I cannot see how Judaism can be a pacifist religion that thinks that violence is never warranted. I think that there are cases when violence is warranted, but I also think, as we discussed before we started recording, that there are rules about it to keep it as ethical as possible. And one of them is distinguishing between combatants and non-combatants. And, and to, to have the Torah record in Moshe Rabbeinu's name, um, you didn't kill all the females. What's the matter with you? Uh, it's it's uh, a very challenging, challenging passage. Um, it, is, it, it is, you know, maybe there's a way in which we say that the, infinite task of growing more noble and more religious and more you know deeper um, is going to have some blind alleys too and obviously i think so what i'd say is something like this our ancient source here takes an approach that the midianites are really really evil what they engaged in, in baal peor and the, and the orgiastic seduction of the israelites was just awful irredeemable and, and the response to that was to, to just a widespread bloodbath. From my perspective in 2021, I just cannot grasp how that is a, a sacred response to confronting real evil. We have to confront evil. We have to confront the Osama bin Ladens of the world. We have to confront, needless to say, Hitler or, or some of the other things that we have seen in our own you know, 20, 20th and 21st centuries, but man, I just, I, I, it's, it's not easy for, to have the Torah complain that they weren't bloodthirsty enough. Is that what they're complaining or is, or is it, I mean, look, I want to, I want to find a way to defend this out of, out of a sense of fidelity to this text, or, or maybe is the, is the, is the defense a real offense, which is, you know, should, should, should the editors of the text have, have kind of 
excise this? Or, or are they trying to say, look, you're going to be in a messy neighborhood? I mean, we say this to this very day, you know, Israel finds itself, if, if Israel were in Costa Rica, it would be a different story. But Israel lives in, you know, He's speaking Spanish, not Hebrew. It's a dangerous neighborhood. We have to deal with the reality of enemies. After all, look at the context here. We've had a fight with the Emirates. We've had a fight with Og Melech Habashah. We've had a fight with some Canaanites already. We've had a, you know, Balak Melech Moab, the king of Moab, trying to, you know, have a, a different set of tactics here. Israel, from here on in, I mean, Devarim is going to be the book of Devarim, which we're going to start in a couple of weeks. So that book is going to deal with just the eloquent you know, oratory prior to entering the land. But the minute you enter the land, Joshua, it's going to be one skirmish after another skirmish after another battle. And then for the next several centuries, for the next couple of centuries, going through the, 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 the reigns of the different judges, it's going to be this enemy, this enemy, the, you know, the Canaanites, and everything. So maybe what we're getting here is primed up for for the next period in, in biblical history. So you mentioned the book of the Devarim, um, Deuteronomy, and there we will find a law for battle that when you besiege a city, you can't cut down a fruit tree. And it's not because the Torah has such concern for fruit trees because the tree will be harmed, but for the people that rely on the fruit tree for food, even though they're your enemy, you cannot take away their sustenance. And I think what we end up with are conflicting voices. And I think that it's helpful sometimes to clarify what it is that we find so offensive. Jeremy mentioned the non-combatants being killed. And there's also the element of extermination. So whenever I hear the word extermination for many years since college, I always think of Joseph Conrad's wonderful book, the heart of darkness, which ends with the phrase exterminate the brutes. It's not something that we want to emulate. You know, that was uttered by Kurtz, who had gone off the deep end um, quite successfully, I might add. Um, and, you know, when Jeremy was talking about enemies, he identified people. You know, we, we're not going to kill all the Afghanis or all the Germans. That's never been our mission to exterminate everyone. And I think it's hard to wrap our heads around. You know, when we were talking earlier, I mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, God lets Abraham come to the understanding that nearly everyone there with under 10 are evil and they need to be destroyed. But as I said, in the absence of something directly divine telling us that, it's hard to believe that we will find that situation on earth where the proper solution is to kill everyone. I think, I think um, you know, Elliot, one of the things that resonates for me about why this is such a problematic passage and why I, why I am not, why I'm not inclined to defend, I'm, I'm more inclined to defend the, the, the knowledge that, listen, we have a tradition that is, that is, um, you know, emerge out of a long, long, long history, long, long, long time, and there'll be very different sensibilities. I mean, um, just to give, to give you what is a kind of an ex uh, uh, a funny, I mean, a gross and brutal and ugly, but I make a little bit of a joke out of it. Funny example. Um, I, you remember that David to to win uh, to win Shaul's daughter in marriage is supposed to like he has to give a, a thousand Philistine foreskins or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it didn't mean he went to the Mohel. It means <laughs> desecrated the corpses. Okay, <laughs> and 
and and he brought back <laughs> he brought back trophies from <laughs> from the battlefield, and that's like revolting and something we would never never consider doing. Um, and and it's because Israel is in a tough neighborhood. I mean, I I, I really do believe that you know ruach tzahal and tohar haneshek, tohar haneshek, the the purity of arms and the and the spirit of of the IDF. In, in the main, does keep um, the IDF, you know, engaged with moral issues in an exemplary way, and it's a really bad conflict. And we know that there are people like Barack Goldstein and and people who have who have you know gone off the chain, and and the thought that somebody in some radicalized settlement somewhere in the northern Shomron is going to read this parsha this week. And say, these people are really evil, and Yehoshua ben Nun had the right idea about it. Is is really so, so going terrifying. back to what Barry said. I mean, the, then then we need to really amplify the multiple voices within Scripture itself. That that Devarim, you know, in the in in Kitetse uh, a few weeks from now, Shoftim, you know, there there are rules pertaining to war. It's probably the you know one of the first codes of, of war. You know, way. You know, prior to the the need for a Geneva Convention and that, and and the, the codification of the idea of crimes against humanity or or the term genocide, which are you know fairly recent in, in human history. Okay, so so the Torah itself is providing uh, for its own, and and even when it comes to you know the the the, the Baruch Goldstein, I mean, you know, you had immediately, you know, Yitzhak Rabin saying, "We spit you out." We spit you out. The, the Jewish people rejects you. Okay, that doesn't um, you know undo the damage, but it says we the normative community rejects this approach. And so here, you know, we're I guess what we can rest from this passage is that it's difficult, and that part of our lives is to deal with difficult passages. I think Jeremy also to amplify what you said to deal with difficult questions, to deal with the difficult ethical moral questions. Uh, is part of it. Well, we, we move on from this to the settlement of the land. Uh, the people are settled, uh, you know, the, 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 the boundaries are apportioned to the land. We have this very interesting episode where uh, B'nai Ruvain, B'nai God, and half of the tribe of Menashe uh, want to settle what we call, I guess, Transjordan, right? The other side of the Jordan. Um, and um, they, they, they petitioned Moses, uh, and Moses answers them. He says, uh, "You're gonna, you're gonna settle in the land, and while everybody else is gonna conquer." So there is already a, a, a kind of, you know, conflict within the people. They make their deal, and they go into the land. They, they, these tribes do agree to fight alongside their brothers, and we have a bit of a lesson here in terms of what the priorities are. Um, let, we're going to gloss over that and, and then go into uh, Parshat Masse. Um, you know, back to, back to some romantic poetry and uh, liturgy and the idea of telling the story. Ela Masse B'nai Israel. Barry, how many places? Are mentioned here. <laughs> I, I would go with 42. <laughs> um, I believe that's the correct answer. And 
You know, what's interesting, we have a, a curtail list at the very beginning of Sefer Devarim. And the general view of the rabbis is when they make lists like this, it's, they're not good lists. These are not the highlights. This is where you had the best time ever. But this is where some bad stuff happened. Um, I think Rashi's comment is that the, the point of the list is to point out really how little travel there was because most of them were either in the first or the last year, meaning that for 38 years, they're mostly stationary. You know, when we see a list of 42 years, 42 cities or to places, and we know that they were in the wilderness for 40 years, we think they're moving every year, but that's not quite how it was. You know, they moved a lot the first year, they stayed still for 38 years, and then they moved a lot the last year as they were preparing to enter the Holy Land. Okay, so, so you know, you said in the list, uh, the list might not be the, the highlights. Of course, the other part of that first Rashi comment is that uh, he, 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 he quotes this beautiful Mashal, Rabbi Tanchuma, Mashal Lemelech Shayab the parable is to a king whose son was sick, the Rapotoni brings him from afar to heal him. And when they go over the journey, his, his father recounts all of the different places that on the journey, Amarlo, Kanya, Shanu, Kan, Hukarnu, Kan, here's where you slept, here's where you got up, here's where I, I, I felt your head, etc. In other words, the, the list in Mase, in this Parsha, is transformed in the rabbinic imagination from a simple trajectory of places to a, a narrative, a story of love, a story of caring, a story of divine caring of the people. Jeremy, I, you resonate with that, no? It's uh... oh, totally. It's like it's like the a parallel midrash about the, the census. Why is it that there takes God takes census? Because I love you all so much. I want to count you up. You're so precious to me. And similarly, the, the, uh, the uh, you know, each, I, lo I love that Rashi about each step on the journey. I want to remember the time we had together, even if it was painful. Even if it was painful, and even if there was violence, even if it was, it was horrible. And so maybe we're getting into a, a larger theme here of, of Bamidbar in general, and the Torah, Bamidbar in specific, and the Torah in general, which is, there is a, there is a love relationship here between the Kodesh Baruch Hu and the people. Um, you know, back to Bilam Balak, you know, where Baruch Hu, this, this, this nation is blessed. You know, after they complain and after they have so many difficulties, so much death and so much, you know, apostasy and everything, you know, this is, a, this is about the relationship, man. What do you think? This, 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 this is sacred cartography. This is the writing of the journey in, 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 in lyrical ways. You know, when we sing this, even in, I don't know how you do it in your shul, you know, when we read this Parsha, I mean, there's a different nusach to this, to this passage, right? We, we How's it go? Yeah? How's it go? How's it go? It's, it's the, it's like the Az Yashir move. It's, 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 um, it's, 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 um, it's liturgically, musically separate because it's trying to say musically that this is a love song. Mm. Well, also, that's uh, the song of redemption as well. Indeed. So, but, and it's important to keep in mind here that the arc of our national story 
is uh, we begin in disgrace and we arrive in glory. So we say Avadim uh, Hayinu at the Pesach Seder and at the end of Joshua, which is part of the Haggadah as well. We recall that our ancestors were idol worshipers. And one of the things that's important for us, not only as Jews, I think, but as human beings, is we know we need to know where we have been. And it doesn't matter whether where we were was good or bad, it's part of who we are. I often think about the ancient Egyptians who when they lost battles and wars would simply not record them in their history. And consequently, there could be hundreds of years of Egyptian history that's missing because fate was not so kind to the Egyptians. But that is not the Jewish way. We record everything, we recall everything. And I was struck, you know, listening to us talk about the difficult passages that we have these difficult passages in the Torah because that's part of who we are too. It's not all light and illumination. There are some real difficult things that we have to work through. Okay, so so we're going to advance a little bit because we're running out of time. But part of the the what 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 is a coda to the book and, and uh, the allotment of the land, the allotment of cities to the Levites, and this um, a very unique. Uh, set of rules pertaining to that gray area of life where you commit uh, a manslaughter. It's not a murder, it's a manslaughter. Uh, mm -hmm. The Torah apportions us to create Aremiklat. Jeremy, talk about Aremiklat. I, I, have, I have lots of it about Aremiklat, but, but I just want to say one thing before we, we get there, one second, which is, um, you know, in the end of the travel log, one of the final stops they're, they're in the Arvot Moab. Um, one of the final stops is they're just before Nevo. And you know what's happening in Nevo, right? Moses is going to die there. And it reminds me of the, po the poem by Rachel, the Mishoreret Rachel, great, 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 great poet. And this is actually on her grave. This poem is on her grave. This poem is me negative about looking across the Kinera to, to, uh, to Jordan, Moab. And uh, it's about every, you know, everybody's going to die. And in every expectation, there is the sadness of Nivo. So here we are about to enter the land. But with that, we, we know that when the story ends, this, another one of the people that we love is not going to be with us. And so in in every expectation, it's exciting. We're going to divide up the land. We're going to conquer the land. This is the sadness of being at the at Moses' grave as well. So anyway, but we're about to enter the land. That is a great sipia. It's a great expectation. And not to bring in Charles Dickens, a great expectation. But... Uh, uh, we know, by the way, that this is not going to be utopia. It's not going to be perfect. There's going to be accidents, and people are going to die in accidents. And uh, in contrast, perhaps, to that sort of wholesale destruction of the fighting of, against the Midianite, the Midianites, the Bible actually thinks that every single Israelite life is incredibly important and has to be cared for. So when, chas v'shalom, there's an accidental death, uh, we have an institution that the manslaughterer, who does have some guilt, you know, the, the, the way the Irmi Cloud works, the city of refuge works, 
is that there's some people who do not need to go to the city of refuge. What happened was a total accident, could never have been foreseen. They have no responsibility for it. Some people don't get to go to the Irmiklat because while they didn't maybe have murder one, they were really, this was no accident. This was their own fault. It's the middle ground of the people who it's not a total, totally, you know, act of God. And it's not, and it's really not pretty close, Karob pretty close to intentional. In the middle, you, you have some guilt that needs to be expiated by a kind of jail term. But you are not free game either. And the victim of your accident, the Goel Hadam, the blood avenger, would, would try to kill you. So what we do with this, the society, the, the community has to protect the manslayer and protect that person and bring them back to the Irmiklat, bring them back to the city of refuge, have a trial, and as much as possible, respect the rights and honor the life not only of the person who was killed, but even the person um, but through whose actions that, that person was killed. And that person's life also needs, needs protection. So it's so interesting, you know, that, that the Torah has these, these bands or these, you know, lines here. I mean, I, as you, you, you were speaking, Jeremy, I'm thinking like, you know, the first instance of manslaughter in the Torah is, uh, let's, I would say Cain. Cain is... Uh, he doesn't intend to kill his brother. He says, come out, to, you know, he say, in the Septuagint, it says, come out to the field, but he, he, he hits him. And, and as a result of the hitting, he dies. And what is the punishment? He is in exile. He has to, he, there's nowhere for him to hide. In fact, the avenger of, Cain, of Abel's blood is God himself. And, and that's the, the, the debate or the, the conversation is I have nowhere to go. And so the compassion, compassion here that ties the bow here is that out of compassion for him, we, we are giving you a place to go. The second person who commits an act of manslaughter is Moses himself. When Moses slays the Egyptian, you know, you look, he doesn't intend to slay the Egyptian in the reading of this. He just intends to, you know, act defiantly, punches him out. But as a consequence of punching out the Egyptian taskmaster, the guy dies. And then what? The avenger of the blood of that Egyptian is Pharaoh himself, and Moses has to run. And he's got nowhere to go, so he has to go over to Midian, with whom we have all these problems later on in the text. And so I think it's very interesting that the Torah is giving us a, 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 a compassionate look at, at, both, at, at, the, at the manslaughterer. That is to say, look, we, we understand. You're, you're, in a, you're in a terrible position. People want to avenge you, you got nowhere to go, so we're going to give you a city of refuge. And so, so we come to the end of this book. Almost with that, we have one more coda story, which is the daughters of Tzalafkad. They get their, their um, ancestral portion uh, based on, on the rules of apportioning the land and inheritance. And then the book of Bamidbar ends. Uh, and then it's, you know, Ela mitzvot mishpatim asher yad Israel barvot yad These are the commandments, the statutes that God gave to Moses, to, to, to B'nai Israel, to the children of Israel in the plains of Moab, on uh, the Jordan near Jericho. We've gone this whole journey. I, I feel exhausted even speaking this, but some reflections about the book at the end and the, the transition moment now 
to where we are both in the Torah, where we are in the Jewish year, where we are, just some words to take us out with as we complete this uh, time. Barry. So there is a sense of a double arrival. We've arrived at the end of the book and consequently we're on the east side of the Jordan, but we've also arrived because this in the sense is the end of the Torah as well. Nothing is really gonna happen after this until the entrance into the land. There's just gonna be a few long speeches in Sefer Devarim. And I think there's a lesson here about how we regard our life because we think of comings and goings and Bamidbar is telling us that arrival comes in stages, that we don't get to where we want to go always, but we do get to where we need to go in a sense. The children of Israel needed to get from the beginning of their journey, having left Egypt in the first year, to the end of their journey so that they can settle down. The Midbar is a book about traveling. It's so, a book about going from one place to the next, and that's what really gives the punch to the Masaot that you mentioned, because we're in motion. But now, at the end of the book, we're taking a deep breath so that we can look ahead to see what the next stage of our journey is going to be. Joe, I'm going to give you the last word here, but just before before I tip, you know, to hand it off, I want to say, you know, part of the journey in in our experience here is is learning. And and, um, I think, you know, not only reading this, but trying to go in depth, the way we, we, we try and ask the questions. And, you know, that's the journey too. We, we are discovering within every Parsha, parts of this journey that, that were, were unknown to us, that were, um, and, and they reveal to us a, a certain um, insight, wisdom, joy, the experience of which uh, I think is something that we share. But Jeremy, take us out. Well, I, I don't know how to add to that. That's that's awesome. You know, it's like reminds me of the. Uh, I think this is a gospel song. Uh, Keep your hands on the gospel plow. Won't take nothing from my journey now. You know, your the journey itself is precious, uh, and it's been. I mean, Bamidbar is a hard book in lots of ways, um, but you know, there's only one way from Egypt to the promised land, and that's that's through the desert and. Uh, and we have to make, all of us have to make that journey. And hopefully, I, I love what you said, Elliot, about, um, you know, our learning journey through this book. It, it, you know, I've been to the Torah lots of times in my life, but it, it really is an inexhaustible treasure because even when it's, even when you find it um, ugly or even when you find it very uh, forbidding. Difficult, uh, challenging. Challenging. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's a locked door. Um, sometimes it really is a locked door and you have to search for the key, but that is a, it's just a precious, it's a precious effort to try to do that. You know, the Midbar is filled with blessing too. We should end with that, the, you know, the blessing of the, the Kohanim, right? May God bless you and keep you. That, I think, let, let's, let's hear that, that voice and let's let that be the voice that takes us into the next chapter, the next chapter, the next book, which is an amazing book. It will be an amazing set of parshas that will help us conclude the journey, conclude the year, and give us and reveal to us all of the wisdom that Devarim is going to un- un- 
So that's that's fabulous. You know, I just want to say one thing, which I, I'm sorry that I didn't think about this beforehand. Obviously, we're coming to an end for, for this session, but we are also in um, great, great, great Haftarah territory Absolutely. of the year. The Haftarot uh, of, of this Parsha in these in these three weeks and then and then in the seven weeks, the three weeks of, of rebuke and then the seven weeks of consolation are just amazing. And that's also a food, food for thought for, for later discussions. We should. All right. And with that, we want to thank all of our listeners and viewers for watching and listening to our Parsha talk. We love having you. We love your comments. We wish you a beautiful Shabbat. And we're going to see you all. And special shout out to our friends in Machane Ramah. We miss you all. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.